0: Hey brothers and sisters, this is actually the second B-side of this week. I decided to take the last part of the earlier B-side because that B-side ran about an hour and I thought that the last segment of it was so important that if anyone was discouraged from listening to an hour episode that you can at least listen to that segment here in a much shorter format. Because I think that what I shared there is that important. So this is where I share the law... Of Jesus, the G- Jesus's law of prayer, um, and how the early church talked about this. It's based on Matthew five verse twenty three to twenty four. So here is that bit excerpt, excerpted and put here in this podcast for your uh, for your benefit. Jesus's law of prayer. I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I'm going to read to you an excerpt from the excellent book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. It is, in my opinion, and this has been seconded by more than one source who is well learned in church history, one of the most, for me, the most important book on church history. It is a lens into how the early church actually operated, and it is from the earliest documents that we have available. It is a fascinating look. And if you want to know, Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks and our Sunday expression of worship, our Sunday liturgy, is largely based upon the evidence, um, presented in this book. And what I mean by that is, um, mostly the flow of our worship, um, that after the sermon was intercessory prayer, and after intercessory prayer was communion. Um, that's an order that we have followed from the beginning since we decided to um, include more liturgical elements. And in the book he shows why liturgy really mattered because liturgy was part of forming the habit and the way of seeing the world and the way of thinking of early Christians so that when they engaged culture, they were never becoming conformed to culture because Sunday's train them out of cultural thinking and habits. That Christian worship was meant to exercise culture out of us and put the kingdom of God into us. This is why I'm passionate about liturgy. It's not because I wish we were Catholic or Orthodox or or Anglican or I have this secret fetish of secretly turning our church into that. Not at all. I mean, there's actually ways to turn a church into one of these uh, institutions. You, you can apply and do that, so I've heard. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is that because this has shown through history to be the best means of transforming Christians. We're not a church about entertaining people on a Sunday. We are about forming disciples on a Sunday. And yes, discipleship goes deeper than what we do together on a Sunday, but liturgy is a huge component of that. Our home groups are going to be another component of that. And the way of life we share with each other, um, that's all going to matter. But that's a huge component. So, um the book, if I got you interested in it, uh, I do need to warn you, it's a little bit scholarly. It's not exactly like reading that's going to make you smile and, and be happy. It's going to take some thinking. It's like a furrowed brow kind of read. <laughs> um, but it's excellent if you have the uh, gumption to read it. So here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to read a, an excerpt of it for you in which um, we see how the church interpreted and practiced Matthew 5, 23-24. So here's what Matthew 5, 23-24 says. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, that's in the section where Jesus talks about, yes, don't murder, and let's also not be angry with each other. So, The church recognized anger coming into the Christian community was dangerous. Paul says, uh, reconcile lest you give foothold to the devil in Ephesians chapter 4. So this was huge in the early church's view. Now, when he talks about offering your offering at the altar, it's easy for us to say, oh, he's talking to Jews and the temple. No, remember, the law of Christ is a fulfillment of the law of Moses. It's its maturity. So we didn't cut sacrifices out of our worship. The New Testament itself says that there are different sacrifices we offer. Our prayers, our praise and thanksgiving, and our bodies. These are the offerings that the church now offers. See, the offerings went from External animals to us and to what we give God in our hearts. It's a higher form of offering. So, yes, we are bringing offerings to the altar. And as you're about to hear, they saw that our intercessory prayers and Holy Communion were the offerings that we brought to the altar. So, without any further delay, here's what Alan Kreider says. I'm beginning on page... Uh oh, it's Kindle so it doesn't have the page number, but if you're reading from a Kindle, it's location 6219, and it is in his magnificent chapter 7 entitled Worship. He says, "Why was this community so concerned?" He's talking about the 3rd century community in Syria. So, you might know Antioch in Syria was one of the biggest hubs of Christianity. In fact, you see that early in Acts, that Acts, it was in Antioch that the Christians were first called Christians. Uh, Antioch was one of the earliest Christian communities. Third century means the 200s. So, don't think that's 300s. This is 200s. This is, this is quite early. Like, like, there are people in the church, um, that know people personally, or remember people personally at least, who were personally discipled by the apostles. Like, we are are within living memory of what the apostles taught the church. So, okay, so he says, why was this Syrian community so concerned to fence in its prayer? One thing he's talking about there is that unbelievers weren't invited to be part of the prayer part. They, they heard the teaching, but they were invited to, uh, they were dismissed from the worship service when it came then after the sermon to the prayers. That's because, um, prayers were considered to be a uniquely Christian offering to God. So this is what he's talking about. Why was the community so concerned to fence in its prayer? Because its leaders recognized how important prayer was for their lives and witness. And they knew that if the relationships in the community were broken, their prayers could be frustrated and even nullified. Uh, look at 1 Peter, where he talks about, um, on three occasions, that our prayers and God's hearing them are, directed, are, are tied to the way we treat each other. Uh, Kreider continues, Of course, tensions would arise between members who got angry with each other. These had to be reconciled immediately, for lasting anger begets sin. The the Didaskalia, one of the documents from the Syrian church, points to a liturgical statement of Jesus that the community took with great seriousness. And here he reads Matthew 5, 23-24. And then he says, the community's offering to God was its prayer and Eucharist. Now, if Eucharist makes you get all Catholic dizzy, I need to remind you. Eucharist is simply the Greek word for thanksgiving. And the early from the earliest time they called communion the Eucharist, because it was their thank you for giving us Jesus. It was a it was a thanksgiving to him. So that's what he means by Eucharist. So uh, the community's offering to God was its prayer and communion, Holy Communion. Uh, but as the Didis, the Didascalia warns, quote, "If you continue in anger with your brother, or he with you," end quote. These will be stimmied, stifled. Your prayer shall not be heard, the document continues to say, nor shall your Eucharist be accepted. End quote. Even if believers pray often, three times in an hour, their prayer shall be unfruitful. For, quote, God will not listen to you on account of your hostility towards your brother. End quote. So, the Didascalia urges its communities members to go and make peace with their brothers and sisters. Quote, Forgive your neighbor, and your prayer will be heard, and the offering which you make will be acceptable to the Lord. End quote. To facilitate the the reconciliation, the Didascalia establishes a conflict resolution process led by the bishop. Now, the bishop was simply the pastor who oversaw a couple of other pastors. Um, Sometimes, as a pastor, I wish I had a pastor who pastored me. It, it, um, but yeah, that's what that was the early church's uh, setup. So um, the conflict resolution process was led by the bishop. Um, what if a flood of new people suddenly come to the discaius community attracted by powerful prayer? The results could be dire. If the newcomers, who had not submitted to the formational process of learning the faith, brought into the church the anger-producing, resentment-cherishing habitus of the wider society, the effects on the community's prayer and worship would be devastating— At war with each other, the community's members would be unable to pray freely. They would be powerless against the pressures of the society that surrounded it. They knew that if a community whose strength is prayer is unable to pray, the community would atrophy. Whoa. (laughs) That's how seriously... The early Christians took prayer at their Sunday gathering. Take heed, brothers and sisters. So now uh we got two more paragraphs. It was not only the Syrian community that ascribed binding authority to Jesus's liturgical saying found in Matthew 5:23 to 24. Other communities also recognized That right relationships are a condition for authentic worship. Cyprian, in his famous treatise on unity, gives this name, Jesus' law of prayer. So he's the one that named it the law of prayer. This rule prescribes that a member who comes to worship angry cannot pray until he is reconciled with his brother. Only then can he offer his gifts to God. In his treaty on the Lord's Prayer, Cyprian repeats this, quote, clear rule, and he says, God does not accept the sacrifice of one who is in dispute and sends him back from the altar, ordering him first to be reconciled to his brother, so that he may pacify God by praying as a peacemaker. Does that sound like a beatitude? going back to Cyprian's words, the greater sacrifice to God is our peace and brotherly agreement as a people unified in the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Tertullian agrees. According to his treatise on prayer, the church's most important instruction about prayer is simple. Reconciliation is a precondition for prayer. Before beginning to pray, Christians must resolve any offense or discord they have with other believers. To truly incite the familiar passage, Matthew five twenty three 23-24, we should not go up to the altar of God before resolving whatever there might be of offense or discord contracted with the brothers. He equates anger toward bro- he equates anger toward a brother with homicide. "Quote: How can one approach the peace of God without peace?" End quote. With deferring nuances, Tertullian and Cyprian said the same thing. For Tertullian, the Christian's prayer was their quote: "Rich and better sacrifice." End quote. For Cyprian, the Christians' reconciled brotherly agreement was their, quote, greater sacrifice to God, end quote. For both writers, prayer was central to Christian worship. It was the offering of the people whose life in the peace of God was exposed by the peace that they enjoyed with one another. This peace was monitored and enabled by the church leaders who hedged the peace by restricting access to prayer. And the peace was expressed bodily by a rite. The kiss of peace with which the brothers and sisters greeted each other in every Eucharistic service. Wow, so the church leaders actually monitored this peace. If people were upset and unreconciled, they would... Asked them to leave the service at that point. And one of the ways that this peace was embodied, if you were at peace with your brothers, they exchanged, and then the book goes on to talk about this ritual, they exchanged the ritual of the kiss of peace. Now you see Paul talk about the kiss of peace at the end of some of his epistles. Uh, So it was in practice as early as Paul's time. The kiss of peace was when you did just that. You kissed your brothers and sisters as a family to show we are at peace and unified with one another. Isn't that interesting? Now you could imagine that that might have brought problems and yes, some of the church writers do. The early church writers do write about some problems. I can't remember who, but one of them was talking about uh, there were complaints that That moment in the service got a little bit out of control or a little bit loud. Um, uh, Yeah, there was some monitoring needed. And there's a reason we don't do that to this day. Because, well, kissing, you may know even from Greek culture to this day, um, that was a much more acceptable practice back then. It was a common way of greeting family members. Um, We, today, usually embody the practice of peace. In fact, if you go to um, super liturgical churches, um, they will they will, uh, instead of kissing each other in peace, they will say, greet each other in the peace of the Lord. I think they'll say, the peace of Christ be upon you. Uh, Then then the people turn to each other and exchange the peace of Christ with one another. Peace be with you, is what they would say. And you go around and you say, peace be with you. Um, It's sort of an empty ritual at this point, because... No one is checking if they are reconciled with one of them at that moment. In fact, usually th- there's people exchanging peace that have never even exchanged names with each other. Um, at least that's my experience as a visitor. So, um, but yeah, you can see remnants of that actually even today in some churches. So, um, but brothers and sisters, the way we do this is that when we end the sermon and we sing, You Hear Us Calling, You Hear Us Calling, Or we sing, I have called to you, O Lord, hear me, Lord. Either one of these uh, songs that lead us into our time of prayers. Um, We've gotten into... uh, I've gotten into the habit of just allowing silence and you guys to take on that time of prayer. There's a time when... That silence should be a time of checking our hearts. We're about to offer to God our prayers. Let's make sure we are living at peace with one another. Because if we aren't, then what we do is we pray and receive communion in vain. And that's also why it's one loaf and one cup that we practice. Because we have to remember that all of this is meant to reiterate and form us into one family. If we aren't going to live as one family, but receive these acts of worship as if we are, we're practicing hypocrisy. We are not living greater righteousness. We are not keeping the law of Christ. We are living the old covenant. We have been called to something higher because Christ is forming us into new creatures. And this happens every Sunday. The scriptures guide us. Our prayers offer us to God, and then God offers himself to us in communion. Let's make sure we don't miss this beautiful exchange by holding hostility or not being reconciled with our brothers and sisters. Don't you see? Don't you see how the church and its liturgy is leading us to a higher life than practicing old Jewish customs? And yeah, I get the appeal to a, a calendar. The Jews have a calendar that you can find in Leviticus. But brothers and sisters, the Christians have a calendar which, which follows the gospel cycles. And, and it follows Pentecost. And it follows Passover. But these things have been fulfilled in the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, we've been called to higher. We've been called to more. And this is an exciting life. We need not to necessarily question, oh, maybe if we just change the methods, everything will be better. Yeah, methods matter. But we have a great method in our liturgy. What we need to do is we need to check our hearts because that is where Christ has put his law. Are we keeping it? So he will build a rich, dynamic community that will be a light on this mountain if we can keep peace with one another. That's the reason this was the first example Jesus gave us of higher righteousness. I think the church caught on to that and saw that this is vital. So, peace be with you, brothers and sisters. If I wrong you or offend you, talk to me. We must not be in the habit of just switching churches because that does not build peace and unity among the brothers and sisters of Christ. We need peace and unity primarily in our local community, Calvary, Chapel, Twin Peaks, And only if we can accomplish it there can we then worry about accomplishing it with other churches as well. The unity of the church begins with the unity of the families which meet in their various locales. So again, the peace of Christ be with you, brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.